We're also aiming for understanding the book of Jude and the fact that God is able. And so let's open up to that book again. It's right in front of the book of Revelation, which we spent a lot of time there. So your Bible probably does open up almost there. Uh, the book of Jude, you might uh, want to put a bookmark there. And I would also highly recommend this morning another place. You might stuff your bulletin in Ephesians chapter number 1. All right, just to let you know, we're going back and forth several times to Ephesians chapter number 1 as well. So Jude, verse 1, and Ephesians chapter 1. I love the sound of those pages turning. That's pretty neat. Heavenly Father, we are... Just now entering into a study of your word. What a joy it is to have your word in front of us. It is our food in the Christian life. It's the bread that we need to eat. And, and I pray today as we spend time in your word, you might nourish us, us with it. And uh, cause us to grow. Cause us to stand, just as your word promises that you may get the glory and the honor for all these things. Help us as we give our attention to it today. Challenge us, we pray, and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, verse number one. Now, depending on the translation you are listening to or reading this morning, you might find it read like this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. You may say, well, that's not exactly the way mine read this morning, Pastor. If you've got a King James Version, for example, you saw Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Now, technically, most of those same pieces are there. They're just in a different order. But... There is a distinction between, the New American Standard, for example, uses the word beloved in God, and the King James uses sanctified by God. And I prefer never to just argue over text or manuscripts. People do that, and I have always thought, number one, it's very boring. Uh, number two, it doesn't really do us a lot of good to, to hash through all that. But what I have observed from studying this through is that most, if not all, the English translations before 1900 used the phrase sanctified, and almost all the translations after 1900 uses the word beloved. Says, well, that's kind of curious. Um, I don't know what to make of that, but I do know they are two vastly different words, aren't they? They don't come from the same Greek word. They're two different words. But I would say this, both of those words are precious to us as believers. Whichever one you want to pull out and say, well, that's the one I want to study today, sanctified or beloved, they're both precious to us as believers. Either one of them is equally profitable for us this morning to study. So I'm going to double the profit today, and you're getting both. All right? We're pushing our theme to show you from passage to passage that God is able. 
We're going to stress that. I'm going to stress that. Because I think it's very reassuring. I know it was in the day it was first written. And it remains so to this day. Because guess what? God is still able. That has not changed. Now we found our main verse of this tiny little epistle as verse 24. And we spent several weeks on this. Now to him who is able to keep you or protect you from stumbling and to make you stand or to present you faultless, you might have, in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And then the word amen is attached to that. Now, we did a lot of work on verse 24, and I know we didn't go right into verse 25. We're going to keep bringing up verse 25 as we go, because that's not going to change either. The whole point is to the glory of God. That's what it's all about. And so, don't think that I'm ignoring that in this study. It's just, we're going to keep pounding on that one too. Because if he's able, he gets the credit. And that's the way we need to keep that in our mind. But the majority of this little letter, after you see that, and we worked with that, is an explanation of a danger of false teachers among you. That's what Jude was addressing. Quite honestly... We cannot afford to close our eyes and assume that here in Hillsdale, Oklahoma, we are absolutely sheltered from false teaching. I mean, it'd be nice if we could say that. It's my ambition to always present to you God's Word in its purity and in its power. I want to keep doing it just like that. And that's my ambition. As long as the Lord gives me a voice to speak, I want to speak to you what He's given to me in study and so that we could all grow thereby. That's my goal. But I'm not the only voice you heard this past week, am I? I'm not saying that I'm unique in the sense that nobody else knows the truth and nobody else speaks the truth. Understand that. But our, our world we live in, we're bombarded with communication, aren't we? In all kinds of set, settings. From your TV to your radio, as you drive down the car, your Facebook ads, you name it. It's just everywhere. We are getting information, 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 information. Is it all true? No. It's not all true. Now, when Jude was writing this letter, he would tell you in verse number 3, I had a different ambition when I started to write this letter. I wanted to talk to you about our common salvation. And my guess is that if he had that opportunity to do that, it would have been a lot longer than one chapter in our book. It would have looked more like Romans, I think, than it does like Jude. Because that was a wonderful thing to speak about. But he had a pressing need that changed the course of where he was going in this letter, and it was about false teaching. Just think through the nature of this book. Just for a minute, I want to give you a small little outline for your mind so you see where we are. In the first three verses, it is introductory. And we're going to examine that a little bit here this morning. That doesn't minimize it. As you're going to see, it's powerful. Chapter 1, verse 1, or, or however you want to word it, just verse 1 is a powerful verse. But once he gets to verse number 4, he starts the alarm. 
The alarm covers verse 4 through verse 16. And that's the majority of the letter. He's describing the ones who are the most dangerous to the congregation. The result of their teaching, and I will tell you this, as simple as I can say, there is no good news for those who fall for their deception. Nothing good comes of those verses 4 through 16, if somebody falls for that. I just entered into those verses. It was many, many, many years ago that I was preaching through this book in one of my churches. And I just started into verse 4 and 5, and I was asked to stop. It's still to this day, I'm thinking, wow. You know, that it's not often that even I would have somebody come up to me and say, don't preach that anymore. Was it too difficult a passage? No. It wasn't that. It was too convicting. It's too convicting to read these things. If it's too convicting and if we want to close our ears to it, we are in serious danger of falling for what we're going to see. We're not doing that today, okay? The last set of the verses, 17 through 23, where we spend a little time in 24, but 17 through 23 are the instructions that are needed. And I say we need even though it was written to Jude's congregation in his day, it's certainly applicable to the church today. I like to give this whole book one little caption, A Believer's Guide to the End Times Church. It's as simple as that. How do you live in light of this? Jude thought it was very important in his day. I think it is as well today, because if he thought he was in the end times, guess what we should be thinking? I think we're there too, especially. So my strategy is to give particular emphasis on what we are to be doing based on the concrete theme, God is able. It's important that we lay that so that we can work from that, so we can confidently step out and do what we're called to do. We have to know this. As we've already examined, God is able to keep us from falling, right? Yes, God is able to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Isn't that true? That's what it says. And we're learning about that. I use that passage primarily to emphasize the thought. I know it's future tense in some ways. We're going to stand in his presence. We're not there right now. As is the day we step into his glory, we know they're going to be true. But the fact is... It is true right now in this way, and this is where the struggle is for us, because we say, how can that be? How can that be? I, I still fall often, and I'm far from blameless. And you say, how, how could you say it's for today? Well, I think it is for today. If stress is, is placed on upon us, our circumstances, our events, the daily episodes that we looked at, we do fail often, don't we? We struggle along, we stumble along, and then pastor says, God is able. And you're saying, okay, pastor, I believe it because it's in God's word, but boy, is it tough. It never says we are able, does it? That's my point. 
I won't go through this passage again, but the overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that God has already placed us as believers into a spiritual reality. He's working in us right now to cause us to grow into something that we are. We are in Him forgiven, right? We are in Him blameless because of Jesus Christ's righteousness, not because of ours. We understand this. Positionally, this is what we are. Ultimately, we will know it practically, too. Ultimately, we shall see what He was doing all along. I take great comfort in this, knowing that it's His plan and not mine, and it rests on His ability and not mine, and I can handle that. I just want to convince you of it that it's true. So I take you to verse number 1 today. Verse number 1. In a way, you could take verse 1 and verse number 4, and you'd have the whole picture of his book in a nutshell. Let me just read it to you this way. Verse 1 and verse 4. Jude, I mean 1 and 24, sorry. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. He talks about the beginning place that emphasizes God is able. And he goes to the final place, and guess what? God is able. Three things I'm going to emphasize today. This is one of my favorite things to do when I get to preach or teach from a passage like this. I love to talk about the great things that God has done for us. And that's what you're going to get. A whole big course on it today. I hope you came hungry. Because there's a lot in this passage. And like I told you, I don't want to miss anything. So I'm going to use both translations. As I explained, one uses beloved and one uses sanctified. I'm going to use both those and talk about the fact that we are completely loved. And we are completely sanctified. And we are completely preserved. And that's the three things I want to start with today. When you pick up the book of Jude and you start into verse number one, usually the author will tell you to whom he's writing. Paul did that a lot, didn't he? Several other writers. Peter does that in First Peter. He talks about those to whom the letter is addressed. Who are the recipients? The book of Jude does not name them. It's unknown. We do not know the congregation to whom he was writing. We don't know where Jude was when he ministered. We call him Jude. His real name was Judas. Most people say, ooh, we don't like that name. Maybe that's why he went with Jude. I don't know. But he was the half-brother of Jesus. That's the way we spoke to him about him, because his mother was Mary, and his father was Joseph. And we can go through that whole story if you want. If you've got two hours, I'll tell you how that works. But the reality is that this is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. We don't know if he stayed in the region of Jerusalem and ministered. We don't know if he went out of that region to minister. We don't know any of that because it's not recorded in the book of Acts to help us understand that. We just don't have those records. But here's the beauty of it. 
All the terms that he uses for the readers of this book are applicable to you and me too. It's almost as if God says, don't put in any names. I want this to be universal for the whole body of Christ. So everybody who reads it says, oh, that's me. And you're going to feel that this morning as we dive into it. You're going to say, oh, he's talking about me. And I think that's very refreshing because it belongs to you. He describes his readers as called ones. Whether that's at the end of verse 1 or in the middle of verse 1. Either way, he identifies them as called ones. Those who are called. Called ones. That's an adjective. In verse 3, and even down all the way to verse 17, he calls them beloved ones. Called ones and beloved ones. Now, if you've ever studied God's calling, you will find it to be wonderful and full of wonder. It's got both sides to it, in the way I like to think about this. It's wonderful that he would think of me, think of you, think of us, and say, I want them. Do you not think that's wonderful? And yet, doesn't it fill you with wonder? Like, why? Why would he pick us? Why would he choose us? That's been a question mark in theology for centuries. Not because they were looking at us, but simply because that's an amazing thing that the Holy God would call anybody. When I was in school, my professor at Tyndale Theological Seminary was Dr. Mal Couch. He's also the founder of this school. He's now with the Lord. We were studying Romans 10, wonderful passage, working through that uh, together and the question is asked by a lot of people when they get into 9 and 10 of Romans especially. They start to ask questions like, why did God save some and not others? And that's a puzzle to a lot of people. They say, why did he do that? Why did he do that? And Dr. Couch answered that in such a sweet and accurate way to me. He says, it's not why does he save some and not others, but... Why does he save any at all? I said, oh. <laughs> That's where it gets really down to what it's all about. Because we are sinful and we do not deserve his attention. We deserve to be treated like that disgusting little bug. You don't even know what to call it, but you're going to step on it anyway. Kind of bug. That's what we deserve in the presence of a holy God. We do not deserve his attention. We do not deserve his love. We... Talk about his calling and choosing us. We talk about his mercy. We talk about his grace. We talk about the death of his son on our behalf. Do you think God was responding to us because we were so great? Do you think that maybe he said, hey, you look good. I'm going to call you. Do you think maybe he, he responded because of our talent? If all that's in your thoughts, you're mistaken. Because Scripture says that our righteousness is as a what? Filthy rag. You attracted to that? I bet you're not. I don't think he would be either. We are still sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. Scripture does not hesitate to paint it as it is. Black and white, it's not pretty, is it? It's not pretty at all. 
And then we pick up this, right in verse number one, our identity as called ones. And what a precious thing to be called. (laughs) Called ones. I told you to keep your bookmark in Ephesians chapter one. If you didn't, you're in trouble. Ephesians chapter one. Look at this precious, precious passage. Start in verse number three. And for starters, I'm going to plow right through verse 14. Watch what is set before you here. Chapter 1 of Ephesians 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now that is an incredible study in theology. (laughs) The emphasis all the way through is he did this. He did this. He did this. He did this. Nowhere is it I did something. And what's also emphasized is over and over and over again that all of this was made possible because of Jesus Christ. In Him, in Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. I went and underlined all those in the passage. In Him. So I always remember, that's not me. He did it. And then three times he emphasized the same phrase, to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14. He kept bringing it up. He's doing it all. We are the recipients of it. It's done through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. His glory. His glory. It's a rich passage. Fascinating passage. We say, well, that's wonderful. We even sing, oh, how wonderful. Oh, how marvelous. And my song shall ever be, Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Have you ever stopped and looked at that kind of love? It says He called us. He called us. What does that mean? That means it was not done by accident, folks. He didn't dial the wrong number. Oops, how did you get on the line? He didn't do that. He never does anything by accident. And and add to that, he never fails in his plan. 
I love that. If he called me, it's meant to stay. Because he did it on purpose. So if he called you, he will keep you. If he started it, he will finish it. Do you not know there's verses that prove that? Philippians 1.6 I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, and I think calling is one, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He won't quit. You will never use the words, I am confident, if that calling was up to your own way, or your own strength, or your own wisdom. You will never put confident next to that if calling was up to you. If we began the work, it's very, very likely we will never get it completed. I hope that doesn't sound like I'm condemning you. I'm looking in the mirror. We don't have the foresight to see the path before us. We don't know the strength that it takes to do the job. We don't have the wisdom to know what to do. We don't know have the wherewithal to stick to it. If our calling was up to us, it will never get finished. That's why our calling must be attributed to God. Because He is able. It's not in ourselves. I'm preaching to the choir, am I? You already know all this. I think you do. In theory, you do. In theology, you do. But what's your pastor talking to you about? About your living. Your practical life. Where do we take the, the knowledge we have in theology and put it into practice? And say, yes, I know that's true. Do the things in the present or the things in the future rattle you right now? You say, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's... Do you think somehow God has abandoned you? Do you think that somehow you might not be able to get through all this? It's so important, folks, that we hang on to that identity that we have in Christ Jesus. You are called ones through faith in Him. You are called ones. Understand that? Is that going to change? No. That's for the glory of God. Yes. Let's give Him that glory. And giving Him that glory is not just saying, okay, that's wonderful, but it's living it out. Which do you prefer? Just a simple thought. If you gave somebody a gift for Christmas, do you prefer them to take it and put it on the shelf and just leave it there? Or do you prefer that they use it? Of course you do. God has given you a wonderful gift. He's called you. Don't put it on a plaque, folks. Don't just put it in some dusty theological book and say, I got it, I got it. Live it. That will give him glory. Because you're believing it and you're doing it just like he called you to do. It's so important that you know that you're a called one. And if you're a called one, then you are completely loved. Point one. You thought, well, although that was point one. No, this is point one. I set your identity so you understand. You are completely loved. Back in verse number one. Beloved, he says. Back in Jude. If you're, if you got a, a 1900 or newer translation, you probably are going to see it this way. Uh, but it says, Beloved in God the Father. 
This is the first word I want to emphasize here. Yes, it's that word agape. It's in there in its form. It's the verb form of it. But here's what I'm going to define for you. And get used to this just for a few minutes. It's not complicated. It's what we call a perfect passive participle. The best PPP you ever get. All right? What is a perfect passive participle, Pastor? A perfect tense. It's a completed action with a resultant state of being. It reached a consummation and it exists in that state. You are loved and stay loved. That's what it says. I call it permanent tense. Just for fun. To annoy all those Greek teachers out there too. Permanent tense. I did not make that possible, and you did not make that possible. We're not taking vows for this, are we? I'm loved by God. If we put this on a graph, what would it look like? It says something like this. Suddenly, you are loved. Right? We like to think of it as kind of a gradual go. Slowly, God's getting used to me, you know. He's trying this, testing us out to see if he thinks it's going to work, you know, kind of thing. We, we put it on a graph like it's a slow-moving thing. But the text says, it happened. And it's full measure. Full measure, all at once. It's like, wow, really? In Ephesians, that passage you still should have your bookmark in. Verse number 4 and verse number 5. He chose us, there's that word, in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Even when we were predestined to adoption as sons, he did it out of love. He didn't say, let's give this a trial period. Aren't you glad? He didn't gradually learn to love you. He loves you and it stays that way. And in case you're wondering, when did that happen? You just read it. That was far before you had anything to do with it. Unless you were alive before the foundation of this world. Who's going to confess to that? That means you're over 6,000 years old at least. You weren't there to influence him. He did it. He loved you even before this world was made. Oh my, that just stuns me. Doesn't that stun you? Like I said, it's wonderful and it's full of wonder that he should do such a thing. But he's loved us. That's what the text says. That's the perfect tense. The passive, we call it the voice in the Greek. The passive voice. If it was active in voice, you could take credit for it. If it was active in voice, you were the one doing it. But when it's passive, it means it's done to you. It's done for you. You didn't do it. God loves you. You did not make him love you. Let that settle for a minute. I know that just hurt the pride a little. That's okay. You'll get over it. God loves you. That's passive. You're the recipient. And since it's a participle, it's a description. 
It's just a description. There's a lot of different ways we can describe things. Usually we use adjectives in grammatical circles. This is the adjective, if you will, in a verbal form. It's just a description using an action. It says, you are perfectly, completely, permanently loved one. That's the description. You are a perfectly, completely, permanently loved one to God. I don't mind wearing that title. It's because he is able to make it so. He is able to keep it so. When you step into Monday, folks, you are loved by him. When you step into any part of this next year, guess what? You are loved by him. When you eventually step into glory and stand there in heaven in his presence, guess what? You are loved by him. That's what he just said. Doesn't that just kind of shake you in your shoes a little bit? Amazing! Amazing! It was said of Jesus, even just as he's about to go to his crucifixion, having loved his own who were in this world, he loved them to the end. That's the nature of our God. He doesn't stop. And these disciples, have you ever looked at them? Thought you'd love to have time with them? Let them come over to the house for a while? They'll fight over your furniture. They will never wash their feet. It's all kinds of things. You're saying, man, these guys, I don't know. Jesus loved them. And he loves you too. And he sees your dirty feet. And he sees your grumbling ways. And he sees how you fight over the furniture. It's just wonderful, folks. It's full of wonder. But you're not only loved. You are also sanctified. The other text that translations use, you are completely, completely sanctified. Hagiadzo is a Greek word. Great little word. A whole family of words come from this word, meaning holy and saint and sanctified and sanctuary, like what we call this room here. I told you before, my definition is set apart for a purpose. Because that's the nature of sanctified. It's set apart set apart, but God never does anything by accident. God always has a reason for it, so you're set apart for a purpose. You're made holy on purpose. God has a plan for this. We always treat things that we call holy in special ways, don't we? Yes, we do. We treat this room as special. We don't play football in here. Why? Well, these pews are hard to hurdle, aren't they? That's not it. It's because we set this room aside for something special. We call it a sanctuary. But I've said this before, and I'm just going to keep repeating it until it gets natural for us to think this way. God doesn't do anything without a purpose. Everything has a purpose. Even a platypus has a purpose. So what, what did he do with that one? I always think that's more like the Matador. Remember when AMC built that car? I always thought that was all scrap parts from every other company. They just took them and stirred them together and made something. But God doesn't do that with our Christian life. He doesn't call us and, and sanctify us and all that. and say, now what do I do with them? He always does his work with a reason, with a purpose. And if he sets you aside, it's for a reason. Do you know that? 
You want an excellent study that will take the rest of your life? Go through the purpose clauses in Scripture. And see how often it says, in order that, in order that, in order that. Because every time God does something, there's a in order that that follows it. He did it for a purpose. God always acts that way. So if you're sanctified or you use sanctification or any other related word, understand the fact that He is the one who set us aside for a purpose. And I hope that we're living up to it. And you say, but I don't know what it is. Get in the book and start studying. God called you for a purpose. You need to know what that is. But just like the last point, guess how he did it? A perfect passive participle. Once again, it's right in front of us. A completed action resulted in in a state of being. In other words, you exist in this completed state. You are sanctified and you stay sanctified. Permanent tense. I did not make that possible, and you did not make that possible. So we're not going to take bows on that one either, are we? God made it so. What did we see in Ephesians chapter 1? You saw it in verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy. That's the same word. Holy and blameless before Him. That's what you just told us in verse 24. He did it on purpose. It wasn't a mistake. It was before the foundation of the world, long before you could make any contributions to it. The position of sanctified is not gained, it is given. God has made it so. Don't try to polish yourself up and step into His presence and say, okay, now, here I am, I'm holy now, right? He says, you can't do it. I can't do it. But God can do this. Because he's able. That's what he did. It's a passive voice. He did not say, you do it. He said, I'll do it. That way we don't get the credit. He does. God set you apart for a purpose. It was done for you. And it's your description. It's a participle. It's describing you. You are a perfectly completed, permanently sanctified individual for God and to God. For God? What do you mean by that? For God. Did did I say that on purpose? Yeah. He set you apart. He's able to make that so. He's able to keep it so. So it works on a Monday. It works the rest of this year. For sure, it will be true when you step into glory. You are a sanctified individual because God has done that for Himself. You ready for this? Colossians 1.16 gives you the picture of it. It shows you what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ, for by Him all things were created. Do you believe that? Yeah. Jesus Christ, by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or yourself. I think we could put that in there, because all things covers everything. All things have been created through Him, by Him, and for Him. Did you know that you were set aside for Him? You were loved for Him? You were sanctified for Him? 
You want to know your purpose? There it starts. You have been set aside for Jesus Christ. I say, folks, that's wonderful. (laughs) And yet it leaves me full of wonder. How about you? You know what? I haven't even got to point three and somebody moved that clock. There is so much good stuff yet, and I'm not going to stuff it to you in two seconds. You have to come back next week and get the rest of this. It's worth hearing. I'm going to guarantee you that. And it's not because I wrote it. It's because God wrote it. (laughs) And we want to spend time with that, too. Start with what we have, just in the first two phrases already. This week, step out confident. God is the one who made you, loved you, set you apart. And he's the one able to keep you. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? That's where you're going with this today. That's where you're taking it, outside this room. Because God is able. We'll come back to this next week. Heavenly Father, these are precious, precious truths set before us. And we need them. We need to bask in these things. Not just to get ourselves... uh, uh, dumpy and fat and over-knowledged over, uh, of these things, but so that we have what we need to face a world like ours. We are not going to be loved by this world. We're not going to be desired by this world. But we are loved by our Father in Heaven. And we're called by You. And we're set apart for You. And that will never change. Regardless of what takes place on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. Reinforce this in our mind. I think that's what we need. We need to have it reinforced, strengthened, set so permanently in our thinking. Lord, I I say it many times. Just write it in permanent ink, please. On the heart, the tablet of our heart. So that we never forget what you have done. And that we might live in light of it. So, strengthen us for this week, we pray. Through your word, in Jesus' name, amen.